what he left behind. We sometimes see just Jesus, the baby who grew up to be a man. No, Jesus was the God who created the heavens and the earth. Without him, John says, nothing was created. This was the creator who had all power, all glory, gave that all up to come a, become a man for one primary purpose. And this is the week that he heads towards his purpose. And on this particular Sunday, Jesus is gathering and he's got his disciples. And recently he's raised Lazarus from the dead, which was very exciting. And so a lot of crowds were gathering around him and whispering, could this be the Messiah? And this was the big Passover gathering where people were coming from all over the nations to celebrate in Jerusalem the Passover. There were thousands and thousands of people with many, many different languages. We know that because when the 120 stood up speaking in different languages, everyone said, wow, they're speaking in my language. Nations, different tribes, different tongues, all standing there together. And Jesus arrives with this hundreds of disciples following him. And he comes over the Mount of Olives, and he comes down. Those of you who've been in Israel, Fana and Irene just got back. I don't know if you did the Mount of Olives right over. Where's, where's Fana? Yeah. <laughs> did you do that? <laughs> and so they came down Mount of Olives, and they were heading down the road that takes them to the Sheep Gate into Jerusalem. And as Jesus was coming down into the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem with hundreds of disciples around him, there's this little village on the side called Bethsaida. And Jesus chooses two disciples, and he says to them, come here. I'm not sure what their names were, so we'll just call them Hangit and Nudu. Hangit, Nudu, been with me a while. I want you to go into Bethsaida, and as you enter the village, you will see a colt that has never been ridden, a foal that has never been broken. And I want you to go and untie that colt. It's tied up by its owners, and take the colt and bring it to me. That in our society is called stealing. <laughs> but Jesus said, now if the owners ask you, why are you taking our cult? You ought to say to them, because the Lord has need of it. They're going, okay. They walk in, they find the cult, just as Jesus said. They untie the cult and the owners, as Jesus said, what are you doing with my cult? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they said, oh, great. Take my colt. Now, I don't know how many of you have a car that you really like, or you have your eye on. This is not what I propose as significant Christian behavior going forward. Why are you taking my car? I'm going on a mission, and the Lord has need of it. This was Jesus we're talking about, right? For Jesus. And they bring the colt to Jesus, and they lay their cloaks on this colt, and they put Jesus on this colt, and they start to enter Jerusalem. Now, although there's hundreds of disciples around Jesus following him, it tells us when he got into the city, there were multitudes, multitudes. And it tells us that he was just surrounded by this great throng of people. And it says a very large crowd. That means a very large crowd. Not just a large crowd, but a very large crowd gathered around him and spread their cloaks, not only on the road, but they cut palm branches from the trees and spread those also on the road. Now, we've got a palm tree in our backyard. It's a beautiful palm tree until you want to cut its branches. Any of you try to cut palm tree branches? What a mission. These guys cut palm tree branches 
because they wanted to celebrate using palms, the coming of their Messiah, the coming of their victor, because palms carried such a huge significance during that time. They were prepared to hurt themselves to get a few. And they cut so many palm branches, laid them on the ground, waving them at Jesus as he came in. And the actions of that day where they were waving the palms, putting them down, is why we call this Palm Sunday. Yay. Those of you that didn't know there was a Palm Sunday, you have just learned something. Now, why do we call it Palm Sunday? In fact, uh, in biblical times, the palm was seen as a symbol of victory way before Jesus. In fact, at the time of Solomon and even King Jehoshaphat, they used palms to celebrate victory. Solomon used the palm tree and palms as a thing of worship and decorated it into the temple that he built with palms. So palms represented worship to the king and the victory and triumph of that king. When we see the Romans, well, the Greeks came before the Romans, right? They didn't last that long, so we always give the Romans credit, but half the stuff they did was the Greeks. So any Greeks in Amist? Tikanis, Kalaf, Christo. The Greeks, when they started their Olympic Games, which was started by the Greeks, right? Do you know how they ran in the Olympic Games? Nude. Anyway, we don't want to, um, that wasn't my point. They would, they would, when they ran the Olympic Games, the victor would get a palm to say he's the winner, probably to cover himself up as he left the crowds. In 263 BC, they started a Roman procession known as the triumph, the Roman triumph of palms. And it was well known for hundreds of years throughout the Romans. Whenever a governor had conquered others, they would take his conquered slaves, they would have a huge procession, and that governor or that general or that victor would ride before them, and they would lay palm branches before him and wave palms. And then he would be given a palm by Caesar and be known as the victor of palms. You can say, wow. You can say it backwards, wow, again. So it was a very common symbol of approval for conquering heroes. But it's interesting that it still maintains a huge significance. John, when he writes about Revelation, listen to what he says. We know the first part. There before me I saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember that. Jesus is still seen as the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. In Revelation, we're still going to be doing the palm thing. Hallelujah. And so that was a moment of great triumph and victory for Jesus, holding huge meaning. But the other thing that is very interesting about this week, and if you do your research, I encourage you, go on Google and even ask questions like this, but the Bible is the most reliable document ever. There are more documentational evidence of original manuscripts for the Bible than any other book. No other book comes close. So the historical value of the Bible is non-contended, even by atheists. In the Bible, there are many, many prophecies about the Christ and what he would do. In fact, the majority of the prophecies are around the Christ and what he would do. And the majority of those are what he's going to do this week. And it starts like this. 
I just thought, why the Psalms, prophecy and Psalms? But the interesting thing is that prophecy, and there are many prophecies. I'm just going to look at three that are fascinating. Just to get you to see that Jesus the Messiah fulfilled all prophecy about him. No man in history has ever done that. The Passover lamb, remember he was called the lamb? On the 10th day of the first month, Exodus says, go choose for me a lamb. And take that lamb and bring that lamb from Bethlehem. <laughs> At the time of Jesus, no lamb was accepted except a lamb that came from Bethlehem. And they would go on the 10th day of the first month and they would choose the most spotless, blameless, perfect lamb in Bethlehem that they could find. They would on the 10th day of the first month lead that lamb over the Mount of Olives, sound familiar, down the path into the Sheep Gate to Jerusalem. On the 10th day of the first day, of the, on the 10th day of the first month, Jesus came over the Mount of Olives with his disciples, entering down that road into the Sheep Gate. And when he came, he was saying, I am now the Passover lamb. And the crowd certainly accepted him as that, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting from the Psalms. They had palms and Psalms in mind. Psalm 118, it says, they shall gather around you and shall profess to you, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Messianic prophecy long before Jesus. Jesus, just like the sacrificial lamb, they'd been chosen. They had chosen him as their sacrificial lamb. Everything Jesus did during this week coming fulfilled what they did to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be inspected by many. Jesus went into the temple and was questioned by many. And they said they could not find fault with him. Everything the Passover lamb went through right till its time of death and in public, the Passover lamb would be killed and presented in the public square on the day that Jesus was crucified in public on the mountain. Interesting. And the same mountain where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Just go, mmm. Then, Zechariah. About 450 years before Jesus, Zechariah wrote this. Rejoice greatly, O Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, for see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but also lowly and riding on a colt. Wow, the fall of a donkey. Now in those days, you would come as a king entering a place with a horse if you meant you were coming for war, because a horse was a symbol of war. A colt was a symbol of peace. So a king who entered a city on a cult was saying, I am coming in peace. Jesus was saying, I am coming as peace. I am coming to bring a peace that no man can give, that you can't even comprehend, Paul says in Philippians. And he, the peacemaker, the, the Lamb of God that brings only eternal peace, came in and on that day fulfilled every one of these prophecies. And when we look at one of the scholars that I, that I read from said this, Hundreds of years before his birth, these prophecies were fulfilled in every detail during the days that started on Palm Sunday. 
Most of the crowds had heard all these prophecies about the Messiah, fulfilling them, yet as we all do, they read these prophecies through their own lenses of what they wanted their Messiah to be and do. Missing the true purpose for which Jesus had come. Interesting. Picture these crowds around Jesus. And I gave you a picture, so you don't even have to picture. But there are thousands of people over here in the corner of the thatch. And more over there. And as we picture these thousands of people crowding around Jesus, most of them had their own idea of what they wanted him to be and do. They were all shouting that he was their Messiah. By shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they knew that that was what was shouted when the Messiah came. So much so that the scabs and the parasites, the scribes and the Pharisees, commanded Jesus, stop them, for they are proclaiming you as the Messiah. And Jesus said, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will start to shout out. But in those crowds, there were three different perspectives of what Jesus was going to do and be. There were three different types, and I, I want to just wrap up by looking at those three types. Is that okay with you? Well, whether it is or isn't, I'm going to do it. And I want you to think, where do I fit in? You know that there are crowds that follow Jesus today. And there are even more crowds, millions, who profess that they believe in Jesus. Many people believe in Jesus, right? But not too many have made him Lord. We have more believers than we know what to do with, and the world's not changed. Because the Bible says even demons believe, but they have at least the true knowledge to tremble when they believe. But the first part of the crowd was the crowd's craving for a conquering king. I would have spelled king with a C, but I think some of you would have said sing, right? says the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Who was the son of David? The Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were shouting that. It was like a passionate moment of worship. It sounded like a huge throng of maybe by the time we are thousands big as a church, what our worship will sound like. And there's so many that believe in Jesus and go to church and even will sing and worship him. But it is what Jesus called vain worship if your heart doesn't see him exactly as he is and who he is. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 17, uh, 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Therefore, they worship me in vain. So many proclaim Jesus. So many will say, I believe in him. But if I don't worship him in spirit and in truth, then I worship in vain. My heart not being right there for him. My heart is desiring what I want more than what God wants. And this crowd thought that Jesus was going to come as Messiah and set them free nationally and politically by destroying the Romans. Jesus came to set them free spiritually and bring a true peace. They thought that the peace that the Messiah would bring was the warfare peace and the Romans would no longer be able to control them because they would be at peace, no longer at war. Jesus said, if only they had known what peace I'm going to bring. I'm bringing the peace that only 
the Messiah can bring, and that is spiritual. Man needed to be saved spiritually, not politically. We cry out to God to save us politically in this nation, but whether he does or doesn't, if you are saved spiritually, you will never fear what happens politically. And so this crowd wanted him to save them politically. And Jesus actually, when he got into Jerusalem, it says he wept over them. He said, would that you had only known on this day what are the true things that make for peace, with tears in his eyes. They went from hail him to nail him in just a few days. The same crowds shouting Hosanna on the Sunday were shouting crucify him on the Friday. And the conquering king craving crowds, their discontentment quickly culminated in crying for the Christ to be cruelly crucified on the cross. You see? Do you all see? How many of us are like this? We base our expectations of what Jesus is going to do. If, if God's a good God, it means nothing bad will ever happen to me. If God's a good God, then everything will work out. He'll provide everything I need. And when things don't work out, we get disappointed. Now, Jesus never disappoints. But your wrong view of what you think he should do and what God should be like will disappoint. And Blaise Pascal said something interesting. God created man in his image, and ever since man's attempted to return the favor by trying to create God in the image we want him to be. We have got to die to that and say, God, show me who you are. Jesus, show me who you are, and that is the only image I'm going to worship. And whether you do for me what I want you to do, it doesn't matter. If you don't, it's because you're king, and I submit to your decision, not my own desire. Then there was the second group, the disciples who deserted in dread. Jesus said to these disciples, just a little while earlier in John 16, when they said, wow, we believe you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, you believe at last, you've been with me three years, now you finally believe. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home. You will leave me all alone, but at least my dad will be with me. We'll never leave you all alone, Jesus. We'll never deny you. Sound familiar? They are so desirous, these disciples, for Jesus to become the king. They had their own plan. John and James were going to sit at his right and his left hand. That when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified, he told them three times. They didn't get it. Peter said, never. This will not happen. You're the Messiah. Don't talk like that. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of. So how many Christians going to church, disciples of Jesus, still have in their heart the things of man that they want God to do? Instead, the things of God that he wants us to do. And the doubtful, dubious disciples, they were undeceived as to who he was, but they were just indecisive. Daringly declared the deity of their deliverer on the donkey, yet departed, denied, and deserted him in distress during danger and disappointment. That is what they call D-Day. So many. I believe in Jesus. I'm committed to him until distress and disappointment come. Jesus, how could you let this happen to me? God, how could you do this to me? Everything you go through is for your good. 
Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome it, so rejoice in your troubles. Because anyone who's fully in Jesus, Philippians, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. Paul had a lot of reasons to be anxious, but he said, receive the peace that not even your mind can comprehend. And if you live in that peace, then no matter what happens in your life, you don't blame God. You worship in the midst of it going, this is all for my good. Thank you, Jesus. And then lastly, the fearless faithful few. Those crowds that gathered around Jesus were thousands. The disciples that had followed him and declared him as their Lord were hundreds. And we know 120 at least made it to the end. How many fearless faithful few do you think they were? Well, in this picture, three. Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John. The only three that followed Jesus throughout the entire process who couldn't care if they got killed right next to him. The only ones who stuck close to him through every step, through his flogging, right up to the crucifixion and the cross. Knowing that the Romans were looking for his followers to do the same to them. Peter, I'm giving him an orange, you know. <laughs> he came close. <laughs> but he denied at the end. But those fearless few, the fearless, faithful few forsook finite fortunes and freedoms to follow their friend, the forgiver, to his ferocious flogging and fateful farewell. Fantastic. Which one do you fit into? I'm just leaving this with you as we go into this week. As you're celebrating Easter, as you're eating Easter eggs and celebrating the egg representing the new life in Jesus. And to recognize what he truly came for. And to ask yourself, well, what is my response to this true king? Because the goal of every Christian is the goal that Paul exclaimed in Galatians 2.20. Is I need to be able to stand here and say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, don't look at the cross representing, oh, death to self, death to self, death to self. I grew up in churches where it was all about death to self. No, what the cross was for Jesus meant he purchased that so it can be the opposite for us. It was death to him, it's life to us. It was judgment on him, it's release, blessing, and forgiveness on us. It was poverty on him so we could made rich. So when we have the cross and we're born again and we say, I'm now dead, then you don't keep killing yourself if you're dead. So stop getting into that religious mindset of, I need to die to self. Oh, I'm still a bad person. I need to die. No, that person's dead. That is not who you are. So when I fall in sin, I look at it and I say, that's not who I am. I am free. I'm alive. I don't have to keep dying to self. I do need to change the way I think all the time. And so I'm asking you this week to allow Jesus to come and do this in your life. Let's pray. Father, as each of us are sitting here, I know that I have been in every one of those three categories. As have all of us, I would think. And I want you to think today, which one is where you're at right now? 
Are you in church because, you know, it's your duty or you want to go to heaven, you want to go to hell? Instead of realizing that Jesus has come to be Lord of all. He designed your plane. So when he's the pilot, everything works out. But for too long, I had Jesus in the passenger seat and I was flying like I wanted to and I crashed all the time. And too many Christians are crashing all the time because they haven't made Jesus Lord. They haven't died to themselves. And if you're here today where when things have gone tough, you've just got mad at God or disappointed and shut down or, well, I'm not going to go to church anymore or I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. And we all know those childish reactions. I've had them many times. But would you say today, I choose to give my life to Jesus. I choose to die to myself so that no matter what happens to me, it's Christ living through me. Whether things go right or wrong, it's Jesus building His character in me. And if you're here today and you know you haven't made Jesus, Lord, maybe you're part of those first two groups, but you're not one who has said, Jesus, I will die. And too many churches and too many messages say, come to Jesus and He will save you. Well, that's only half true. The Bible says Jesus can only save you if you make him Lord. You come to Jesus, the message is not come to Jesus and he'll save you. The message is come to Jesus and die. That is the true message. You want to be a child of God? Come die. How many of you would like to die today? That's what it means. And if you have not died to yourself and made him Lord of your life, I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to give you that opportunity today. If you know that you need to get right with him today and you want to do that, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Just raise it up high so I can see it. I want to pray for you so that you don't go from this place not having taken the opportunity. Who here is saying yes to that? Raise your hand high.